What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly look what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by my trusty co-host Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, what's going on, man? <sighs> Nothing much, man. It's hot out here. Dog days of summer. <laughs> but you know what never stops? The content never stops because no. we're, we're covering five albums today, a couple of TV shows, and you made it to a movie last week. And, and man, I'm excited for the movies next week. We got a oh, Jordan Peele yeah. movie coming out. You kidding me? We made it. <laughs> we made it. The long wait is over. Um, so if you enjoy listening to our reviews on these things or things coming up, hit that subscribe on youtube.com slash nostalgia pod. And Dave feels a bit like deja vu because we're back in the K-pop world to start this week talking about Itzy with Checkmate, their first release since their full-length debut album, Crazy in Love from last year. And Checkmate, you know, just like a lot of these K-pop releases, a nice short seven song album. And I really appreciate these mini albums. Shout out Kanye West. Uh, Itzy, <laughs> though, um, you know, I, I think in listening to them and compared to some of the other groups we've and artists we've been talking about from K-pop recently, this felt like a bit of a return to like the traditional K-pop sound in, in my book. And mm. It was welcome in some ways, but also kind of left me feeling like, eh, well, I don't know how exciting this is compared to some of the other stuff. How, how did you feel after listening to Checkmate? Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, you have a lot of the things you come to expect from these K-pop releases, and the production side of things is largely within those expectations as well. So, yeah, I don't know if I was necessarily wowed or super impressed with anything, but I still didn't mind a good amount of these songs. I think, like you said, a big part of that is the brevity of many of these K-pop mini albums, EPs, whatever you call them. And yeah, I think just um, the production seemed to really match what the, the performers of ITZY, these five women, their strengths seemed to really match this production. And I think if you look at the, the lead single on this, the one with the music video, sneakers mm -hmm. that's you know that that's your that's your banger off this release oh, yeah. and i actually like really enjoyed the verses on that because the members really go back and forth between singing part of the verse hip-hop part of the verse really back and forth i think it really keeps you on your toes keeps the energy high alongside this you know engaging production as it is and you know, I think I actually think the chorus itself, that hook, the you know, the uh, put your sneakers on part. I actually think that's one of the weaker parts of the song. But like all those verses and especially that pre-chorus or that, that yeah. singing is like really great. I, I think just there's so much so much catchy stuff about that song and the chorus is almost besides the point. Yeah. No, I agree. I sneakers was a clear standout. Um and it, that pre-chorus part you're talking about i love when they're like or oh, you can call me weed like it just sounds <laughs> so fucking good um and yeah i it's interesting because the song starts off with this almost like you know like middle eastern influenced like mm. tr uh, sound to it and then it kind of goes like more traditional but then it always kind of goes back to it so it was interesting Ke definitely kept you on your toes and yeah i agree with you as well i think the chorus is the weaker part of it but I don't think that's the only song I really like liked on here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Domino was a song I really liked near the end. It's it's the last. So there's actually only six songs because they have the uh, all English version of Sneaker to kind of close right. this out. 
so domino is like the closing song in a way as well but it just is like it's definitely pure k-pop but it just sounds so like glamorous and like yeah it feels very summery yeah which i really appreciated and they really like ride on on the the production really well so i think those are probably my two standouts from this were there any others that you liked there were yeah i think with domino the summary nature of it kind of brings back the thoughts we just had last week with their JYP label mate Nyan, which was definitely yeah. a lighter summary vibe throughout the course of her solo debut there. Good call. Uh, yeah. I uh I enjoyed 365 a lot as well for the hip hop on that. Also mm. heavy electronic production there. And then what I want, uh, I think is actually becoming a bit of a grower for me. Because that's another one where it's like kind of like a repetitive, almost like playful hook. The I know what I want, what I want. Like, you know, like it's like it's repetitive, but it's actually still like like lyrical and like saying a message and stuff. And like it was becoming catchy for me. So I think that's one I'll actually end up going back to. When I first heard it, I was like, eh, I don't know about this one. But yeah, I think I think overall I uh I en- I enjoyed this release and definitely interested in Itzy. I noticed that all of their like lead singles throughout their their run and they only debuted in early 2019 all of their singles have been english so mm. they are clearly focused on a They're global for it. global appeal here so definitely looking forward to seeing uh, what's next from them and what else jyp is cooking but yeah i mean this has really been the k-pop summer for for women it feels yeah. like with nyan and not too long ago the a twice release and now we yeah. have itsy and espa and we know blackpink's coming in like a month just to just oh, to, and girls generations coming back from hiatus it's a huge huge summer for uh the k-pop ladies for sure man that blackpink album you know is just gonna break every record Don't get possible. Started. <laughs> uh we're excited to talk about that but we'll be adding a song from itsy to our nostalgia best of 2022 on spotify so hit the follow on that let's stay with k-pop though but go to a solo artist who's mm. you know releasing his first solo work. That's J-Hope from BTS. Uh, you know, BTS on hiatus right now. Not broken up. They're on a hiatus, supposedly. Um, and J- J-Hope dropped Jack in the Box. Uh, not what I expected at all. And, you know, in doing a little bit of like research about this, it seems like that was intentional. He was really trying to show a different side of himself, a darker yeah. side of himself with this album. My question for you, Dave, is did that switch up for him work? I think so. Yeah, this J-Hope's Jack in the Box, which is not his first solo work. He had his 2018 mixtape Hope World come out. But this is what he's considering as like proper like solo debut. Jack in the Box definitely impressed me for exactly what he clearly was going for, which is his unexpectedness. But I thought this definitely brought a lot to the table. And for a BTS member who was most famous for being the lead dancer. Dancing was his number one skill in the group. The fact that the dancing guy can give you something, I think, this interesting, you know, and, and he co-wrote um, every song that had lyrics on this release. Um, I was definitely quite impressed. I wasn't expecting something quite this artistic. Yeah, I agree. Even though this was not what I was expecting at all from him or really any member of BTS, I thought that this was really interesting and, and pretty well done. You know, it really blends a lot of different sounds. You know, there's a lot of hip hop in here, but also just like heavy rock elements and yeah. like arena rock elements infused in. 
and it has this just like dark almost like grimy feel to it at points and you're just like it's, it's pretty cool to like hear him going back and forth between english and uh you know korean on this and it just even the singing and the rapping all kind of makes sense on it i was really impressed with this level of artistry yeah no, i mean when i listened to it the second time i was like yo this is this is kind of tough this is kind of me yeah. and i just wasn't expecting that kind of vibe but honestly like i think right off the bat with the uh the big single that has the video already more yeah. like you said i mean you have this like really dark but still energetic rapping off the start clear aggression in that delivery and then like you said when the chorus kicks in these guitars just out of nowhere and it's like oh wow this is like this is like really like bombastic but yeah. still kind of has like it's like an evil side to j-hope you know i, I thought it was really cool um and there, there's other songs throughout the track list as well that i thought were pretty cool so yeah over overall i, I was quite impressed yeah more and it reminded me of like a grunge song like a niche grunge song from like the 90s in a way it like that maybe like moby got and like flipped like a remix of at that point it has like such cool production but it does sound kind of hard to it. i mean the music video doesn't go as hard as the song goes but i mean sure. We, we can only ask so much of him at this point. Um, I actually think the the song before Pandora's Box is like mm -hmm. also one of those songs that just really stood out to me. Um, it, it, he rap he's rapping so fast over this and switching back and forth between English and Korean and just like the production sounds like something from like Mad Villainy or something like that at points. I'm just like, what is this? Uh, it was just such a cool opener. Uh, and then, of course, you get into more, which I thought was pretty great. And then from there, what other songs stood out to you from the album? Uh, yeah, so after more, I thought the song right after it stop. I enjoyed it a lot as well. I think uh, the drum feel from more kind of carries over there. But then the horns really stood out on this one, the way the mm -hmm. guitars stood out on more. So overall, I like that. Um, and then uh, What If I thought kind of a slightly different speed after you get the interlude there enjoyed that and then uh, Safety Zone because like out of nowhere for the first time you get like these like background vocals like coming in towards the second half of the song there and I agree on Pandora's Box as well yeah I, I think What If you know sampling Shimmy Shimmy Ya yeah. Larry Bastard I mean what a call just in general yeah. that takes balls honestly man to pull that yeah, off yeah for real um and then, uh, yeah, I, I think that was probably the highlight from this, the second half of the album. Future, I think, too, was a song I I enjoyed quite a bit. I think it's just like when he is able to like bring in that hip hop vibe with some and like kind of infuse those rock elements. And then like his voice just kind of really f went perfectly with the production that he went with. It just really uh gave me a side of him that i didn't expect to see and now he's gonna be at coachella i think in a few weeks right uh lollapalooza lollapalooza yeah sorry Coachella yeah. already happened lollapalooza in a few weeks right yeah as a headliner uh which was announced in advance of the hiatus announcement a bit of foreshadowing there but uh yeah i think um his dancing ability is well established he has this in hope world and of course he can do medley of bts hits as well i think that'll actually be a a set to tune into too because that's kind of like a big moment in the bts highest timeline we're in right now you know so hearing jack in the box i have no reason to doubt that that set won't deliver as well yeah i'm excited to see how it goes i'm sure it'll be all over social media and 
getting a lot of attention. So I'm looking forward to that. Any last thoughts on this album? Or are you ready to move on? All right, let's keep it moving then to our guy, Steve Lacey, who we've uh, we've talked about a few times. Uh, we talked about his last day, uh, solo album. Um, and he just dropped this new album, Gemini Writes. Mm-hmm. You know, second, after, second full length. Second full length solo album. And, you know, I think after his last album, um, we weren't super excited because I think, uh, I think uh, Apollo, what was that, 21? Is that what it is? Tw- 21. Yeah. Apollo 21 was like, okay, there's some good stuff on here. Steve Lacey kind of finding his footing. You know, we're, we're going to kind of give him a pass for his first one. The Lo Fi's. I don't even know if we talked about, right? How, did we? No. no. So it's like, mm-hmm. what we talked about him on the internet, of course. Yeah. But what were you really expecting going into this? Yeah, well, I think that's right. There was a lot of hype and anticipation for that first Steve Lacey solo album, Ball 21, because there was a lot of anticipation for Steve Lacey off those, that the Steve Lacey's demo project, a project he recorded on an iPhone, you know, and next thing you know, he's helping Kendrick with Damn and he's working with Solange and, He's a part of the internet as well, and conspicuously was a part of the internet rising in critical estimation around ego death when he joined. So, like a lot of anticipation for Steve Lacey when he was still, um, uh, you know, around a teenager, you know, like twenty years old. And that album, that debut album, was just kind of a bit half baked, a bit undercooked for the talent that was evident. So, coming into the second album, I was just hoping to continue that forward momentum or, or restart it i guess you know because i think the promise of steve as a soloist was a bit different than his contributions to the internet the band because i think his music at his best to this point was a bit more up-tempo a bit more energetic a bit more personality filled than say the internet where you know sid's vocals can be a bit um uh, softer right by design so you know coming into this point couldn't help but notice that the big hit off Steve Lacey's demo, Dark Red, became an even bigger hit on TikTok, went platinum for the first time this year, you know, five years, almost five years after it come out. So one would hope that Steven noticed that there was interest in the most well-received stuff he had put out to this point. And, you know, we calibrate a little bit from Apollo 21, we can get something cool. I did not expect the second album, Gemini writes, to be nearly as impressive as it was. And I, I just, it's just so much better than Apollo 21. I find it really, really mind-blowing. I was like, wow, like this is like, he, he's like right back on track now. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, you know, I, I think for for me, what surprised me most about this album was um, the way that he infused so many different genres in such a succinct way. Right. And it it feels very much a true testament of his artistry and the things that the influences that he loves and that he really um, has always tried to kind of put into his music. But he was just able to do it in such a clear way in this. And every single song sounds different, but also the album sounds very cohesive and has a very distinct feel to it. And it feels very like light and airy and summery kind of similar to what you would think about when you think of someone born on the cusp of summer, but also I think it's super interesting. And 
I think you kind of hit the nail on the head when you talk about the TikTok influence. So many of like the moments on here feel made to be just like repeated in your head in short bursts. Like for me, I, we came onto the pod today and I was singing one of the lyrics from Sunshine where, you know, during the chorus for saying my, saying my ex, like my name ain't Steve. It's so good. And it's just like, I can just see that blowing up on social media, you know, as like a, a meme in some way. So I just was like, really pumped to see him uh kind of level up uh in the second uh, solo album talk to me about the the songs that stood out to you most yeah i think the lead single bad habit immediately grabbed me when i first heard it in uh advance of this whole album that's that's the song where i was like oh no he noticed people like dark red because this is like you know this is the, that's the steve lacy banger as it were a guitarist who who makes R&B and funk music with jazz influences that's his equivalent of a banger and it's a good one Um, yeah I think Bad Habit's just incredibly catchy but overall on that song on many of the songs that Gemini writes I think Steve vocal performance is the best we've ever heard from him he's very animated very energetic he's just has imbued more personality into his actual songwriting and and performance and I think that goes, that does really go a long way because, again, we felt a little bit lacking before, but now he just he feels like so much more of a fully fledged personality. And I think a big part of that is this album is uh, super sexual, super yeah. romantic, and Steve had been out uh, as a as a queer man for for a few years at this point. But I think now we're really seeing him just being open, and honest in his music as well. So and I think it really all starts with that habit, which is just a blast. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I, I can't even, I, I think you summarized that so well. I don't even know if there's more to add with that <laughs> habit other than like, man, the, those lyrics in that chorus, can I butt your tongue like a bad? I mean, like, how do you not get that stuck it's in It's a your head, head banger, head? man. Dude, like, dude, you're banging so your head good. to this shit. He, I know, like... but, <laughs> you know, in, in listening to this, I think the songs that I like the most sound so timeless, like Helmet was probably the first song in listening straight through that really like grabbed me. I think Static's okay, but not one of my favorites on the album, but mm. Helmet, the second track. Yeah. This sounds almost like a Stevie Wonder track in some way. You know, it's got those distorted guitars like playing in the background over this like percussion. And it feels like yeah. something that could be from the 60s or 70s or obviously from 2022. It's pretty nuts. Yeah, I really like the way he sings on that song too. He really lets like the notes kind of hang for yeah. an extra beat too it's just like it's just like that kind of touch where it's like man like he's like really in his bag with the performing here like yeah, yeah I, I thought i thought helmet was awesome the song right after that Mer- mercury the horns almost giving off like a vague like mariachi vibe to me yeah um really enjoyable yeah i agree that the, that was a great flourish on mercury um what else on here uh oh sunshine obviously like i mentioned yeah. i think is probably my second favorite track on the whole thing and the way that him and, and fouché yeah. go back and forth is just gorgeous she has real like halsey vibes in her voice like oh, she has that like i don't know i don't know what it is like almost like purr to her vocals at times and then she can like burst through and just have this angelic voice it was i was really impressed and i thought them together were a great combo um any other tracks that really stood out to you i think we kind of nailed all of those for the most part i thought cody freestyle actually was kind of interesting for like the frankness of some of the lyrics there again the sexual themes coming out um yeah but yeah overall i think this is quite easily for me my favorite 
solo album from any of the internet members. Not that it's a competition, but this is the one that I found the most uh, fun to revisit, I think. And Steve mixes up the genre, but like generally, like it's just it, the energy is there, and he really matches that uh, with the pr- pr- uh, production and the instrumentation. But he matches that energy with his performance as well, vocally. So I think it's just a real great listen. And I, th- I think Bad Habit's going to come around for us at the end of the year. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. I think this album might come around for me. I'm not sure. Yeah. I'll probably give it a few more listens. But again, check out our Now Sell Your Best of 2022. And Dave, let's let's stay in, I guess, rock. You know, I, I have a couple of, of thoughts that I want to get to and just in terms of like how we're defining mm. uh, rock music nowadays. But Black Midi is back dropping hellfire which you know if black midi was already a pretty un like indescribable band in terms of sound and influence they just push that uh those boundaries even further with hellfire because it, while at once it feels like the most black midi album ever it also <laughs> feels like they are infusing more and more genres that just make them a, a chameleon in a sense and mm. I, I think it, it really worked for me in a lot of ways did you did you have the same experience with hellfire yeah i'd say so third album in four years for the british now trio and i think yeah the, the old label of like post-punk you know band of which they were rising around the same time as some contemporaries like squid and black country new row this new subsect brewing across the pond in the uk and england and yet now with hellfire it's like wow like the post-punk is only part of their music now mm-hmm. it's experimental rock noise rock math rock it's all kinds of stuff that frankly i don't know how to quantify or describe half the time because like you said they're just cramming stuff in yeah. and they're having a blast they're basically said as much in promo they're like yeah we're just having fun and making a living basically and more power to them you know but uh yeah i think it's it's they make music they, and this has been the case for the whole time i think it's even more obvious now like it's like they make music where it's like for me i can't even go down the rabbit hole with the lyrics like there are <laughs> there there are threads on threads online about yeah. references to cavalcade their second album it's all kinds of stuff it's like you know, I can't even engage with that because <laughs> there's just so much sensory overload with the musical, the, you know, the instruments, the production alone. I can barely listen to what he says. But, you know, I think the vocals, the vocals can be kind of fun. And I think Hellfire, uh, I think, interested me most because it, it seemed like it's their most, um, like, positive album. You know, it's like really... It's like it's like it's like a it's like a movie, like a blockbuster movie. If Black Midi scored one, you know, there's like a lot of events happening. Now, can I tell you necessarily what all these events are? No, but they there were events. Things happened on Hellfire. Yes, things definitely happened on Hellfire. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, Dangerous Liaisons, a song that is like. Uh, a cabaret show toony type song is about uh, i'm pretty sure like getting a man for hire or like the person who's like the main character in the song being asked to kill somebody Mm. pretty uh pretty interesting stuff and like you said like you can go down the rabbit hole with this stuff and try to make connections i think that's just like 
I, to me, that's the secondary part of their music because I think the uh, the sonics of it are just really interesting. Um, but man, I, it, I don't know if I ever expected to listen to an album where like I hear songs that sound like Primus and then songs that sound like they're like made for Frank Sinatra in some sense. <laughs> it just is like how how they blend this all together and make it sound even somewhat cohesive is pretty interesting. And I think even more interesting is like they recorded this in 13 days. Um, them and, and their producer, uh, Marta Salagini, uh, Salagni, maybe I can't, I don't know exactly how to say the last name. I apologize. Um, just like they were on tour and just like got in the studio for 13 days and just recorded all this and put it out while they were touring. Pretty, uh, pretty interesting. It, I think it definitely feels like they just like had this lightning bolt of ideas and it was just like let's just get all this out and see what comes of it um i do i don't think it all works you know like the first two tracks hellfire and then sugar zoo are like pretty out there it's got this like army drum line going through hellfire and the next one is like supposed to be like a boxing match like type announcer Mm. guy at the beginning it's when it finally gets to the music it's noisy and fast-paced and like crazy like energy but um it's a lot you know yeah and i think it's it's, i don't think everybody's gonna love this but i definitely love that they just kind of went for this kind of shit yeah i mean at the end of the day it's very self-indulgent it's very busy on the other side though it's also very loose and free of convention yeah and it they're getting more and more singular as they go like i said the post-punk umbrella barely applies anymore so you know i i I, it's weird like the whole time ever since i heard schlag and i've been like bm 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 and all that stuff it's like i don't know if this is like music that i necessarily like feel compelled to revisit a lot but whenever i do hear it i just find it interesting because of the breadth and volume of ideas that they just bring to the music and they make it sound good or at least it's very well made it doesn't mean it's all always sounds good like you said sometimes it just can be like displeasing to the ear of some listeners and like for me it's like yeah it's like sometimes it can be just noise but hey they're 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 doing their thing and i I respect that yeah i think one of those i think probably the most like displeasing song to be in and it's not even like a full song it's like an interlude is halftime which is Mm. just like uh, it's really supposed to be like i think like a midway point of the album but like it has that like distorted like i don't know what it is like tuning of a radio which i just really hated and it really kind of like took me out but then you get into the second half of the album which i think is pretty strong like the race is about to begin has that like super awesome guitar it's like and the drums i mean morgan simpson just went crazy on the drums on this album they're they're mm. fucking ripping the whole time um and then you get a dangerously aged on it's probably one of my favorites on the album and then you get the defense which might actually be like the most beautiful song on the album you know they're using a lot of like country and like yeah. um the what is that thing called on the guitar when they uh the the metal thing on the finger i can't remember what it's called but hmm. basically it makes it sound like a wah, 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 oh yeah um, the bar whatever whatever it's yeah called. i I, usually, I always know the same i can't think of it now but regardless i i think this is still a pretty strong showing did you have any songs that you were like oh that one's pretty cool i like that one more than some of the others yeah i enjoyed well uh welcome to hell okay um, 
I thought actually Hellfire, you know, the way that starts with like all those horns going on, then you get the vocals coming in. I actually kind of enjoyed that. Um, mm-hmm. I think Strumbar is what we were looking for there on the guitar. Yeah, maybe not. Um, still, I thought was kind of cool. And, you know, on um, the race is about to begin. I did kind of enjoy that song's function as an interlude where the announcer is like coming up a song like no other. It's like they're very self-aware about the music they are making, which I, <laughs> I just appreciate. So I think for me overall, Welcome to Hell, I thought was the most enjoyable and to me felt like one of the more conventional songs, obviously on a curve per Black MIDI standard. But <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think I think overall, like if you're a fan of Black MIDI, or at least have had interest in them, you know, three albums in four years, this definitely continues that progression. And I don't see why this would turn off someone who hadn't already been turned off, you know? Yeah, totally agree. Um, yeah, I think Welcome to Hell is probably my favorite, but like I mentioned, Dangerous Liaisons, I really enjoyed as well. So um, definitely recommend checking this out if you've enjoyed them to this point or even just interested in them. Uh, that post-punk music scene. Oh, so this is what I wanted to ask you. I, I, I listen to this on a run. You know, we, we talk about alternative music all the time. We talk about most of the time female alternative artists, right? At this point, is this is this really what the alternative music is? Like this post punk like movement and it's more and like that that at this point, like Phoebe Bridgers and all them are really just more so like what rock music really yeah. is. You know, if it, it feels like there's just been a shift in terms of what what we consider to be alternative. Yeah. Well, you'll notice we didn't talk about the new Interpol album this week. <laughs> Dave, you're uh, going to have the Interpol stance coming for you now. You know yeah. that. First time in four years. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I think in, the indie rock has largely moved to the center, largely driven and carried on the backs of women, as we've talked about a lot. And this kind of as close to mainstreaming as you can do with this kind of music seems to have happened with all these other post-punk bands. Now, I think it's important to note that like these, these are definitely fringe acts as far as like national or global scale. Like you look at like the, 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 the scope of the rooms they would be touring in stuff like that. So there still seems to be kind of like the rock music in name only that, truly dominates like your imagine dragons and your mumford and sons and that kind of shit mm-hmm. but like in terms of like what the critical community seems to pay attention to yeah i think that's definitely right that indie rock seems to have been and the the, the like more mainline indie rock we think about the last five years that seems to be the, the center yeah. or at least the center of what people really care about yeah that... and i guess we should know too that pop music has made a clear pivot or at least down a road for now to more throwback pop punk sounds, but that's largely been still under the umbrella of as part of pop music, you know, think of like machine gun Kelly and now people like Demi Lovato as well. Like you're, you're definitely hearing rock being upstreamed as well. So uh, it's, it's evolving and I'm, I'm very curious to hear how much rock we might get on the 1975 album that comes mm. out at the end of the year, TBD there. But uh, yeah, I, I think rock is, there's at least, I think, more interesting things going on than there were like five years ago. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And uh, I'm glad that, that we're kind of on the same page with that. We'll be talking about 
a lot of the, the music from this scene as it makes sense to, but definitely check out Black Committee. But Dave, let's talk about Lizzo. The, I don't know. I, I don't even know really how to describe her. She's so singular in terms of the the pop world. I mean, we haven't heard from Lizzo in, in a few years now. Um, obviously dropping some singles, but her last album was 2019. So, you know, three years. And as she mentions right at the top here, she's kind of just been like out of the limelight for the most part since 2020, since COVID hit. And so special drops. Mm-hmm. I think expectations were high. Do you think special met those expectations in short i think it did and there were high expectations for special because as you said as lizzo says in the beginning of the album this is the first lizzo album first lizzo project of any kind to come out since lizzo blew up and became a mainstream pop force because because i love you early 2019 comes out and the next thing you know truth hurts really blows up a song from 2017 not a song from that album originally you know one of the first modern tiktok revival songs in a certain sense i guess you could say um next thing you know that blows up then good as hell blows up and lizzo blows up and now she's going to be going on an arena tour at the end of the year like she's a huge artist now and if you look at the track listing for special you'll notice that as most huge artists do she has a who's who of A-list producers oh, working yeah. with her. Mark Ronson, Max Martin, Omar Fetty, Kid Harpoon, who was just all over Harry Styles' album, um, Mike Dean, uh, Ian Kirkpatrick, the co- yep. writer of many Dua Lipa songs. You know, uh, Benny Blanco. Yep. It, it's everyone, basically. Yep. So Lizzo has got all the help she needs. And then you listen to the album, and... I was actually a bit impressed with, I think, how much she manages to get out in a short runtime, under 40 minutes, and it didn't feel compromising at all, honestly, like her first album as a pop force, but it still felt and sounded like a lot of the most appealing things about her earlier music, and yet I think she still kind of like is living up to that higher standard now, which is coming in spite of the fact that with her increased profile, she is... Uh, come under more online abuse and is off always at the forefront of body image discussion, whether that's positive or negative, and seems to bear a lot of cultural responsibility, I guess, on her shoulders, right? But I think she largely matched that uh, pressure on this album, which I think is obviously very commendable. Yeah, I completely agree that this lived up to expectations i was i I thought this was pretty much banger after banger on this even the tracks that are a little bit slower and toned down i think really are very catchy and fun to listen to um i really was impressed with the way she's able to speak um to social uh social commentary social causes but also just kind of like make critiques in a way that I think um, still made her music pretty palatable. And she doesn't like pull her punches, you know, for someone as famous as she is. And like you mentioned, going on these arena tours, uh, she goes right out there and says the things that she believes in and that she wants to advocate for. I mean, she, she named one of her songs, everybody's gay. She's pretty much just like, this is 
who I am, what I believe in. And I think the music still absolutely goes. And you mentioned how she keeps a lot of that, um, a lot of the sound that has made her popular to this point, made her so successful to this point. I think you get that in the first two tracks right away. You know, you think about something like Juice, which was probably like the first time that people like she really, really blew up with a song. Uh, I mean, she had had uh, Boys, I think, to that point was probably the second biggest track. But Juice really kind of elevated her. I think the sign and About Damn Time infused that like, disco 80s pop production that she just really really thrives in and you just kind of hear that coming like every other track from there on out and she just really really uh she's just really great in that realm of pop music um about damn time we we knew was already like it has i think over 250 million plays on spotify huge tiktok uh trend already but the sign i think just like starts the album off on such a fun boppy catchy uh, foot that you're kind of sucked in for whatever whatever's left to come from there um what else did you like from there like what are the songs yeah well i think lizzo's does a really good job on special with giving you her brand of pop music which is very uh positive and uplifting and just trying to make the listener feel good. That, that's her thing, you know? And I think at times, lyrically, she can feel a bit cheesy or corny. But on the other hand, it still kind of feels authentic. Like, that's mm-hmm. just who she is. Yeah. So it's, like, not really a demerit. And I think often, like, the way she performs, you know, obviously, she comes from a bit of a hip-hop background, you can hear hip hop cadence in a lot of her songs. It wasn't really, I wouldn't call this a hip hop album at all. Mm. You know, I think she's really all the way into pop now. You know, like Doja Cat can still bring you rap and just rap her ass off. Lizzo doesn't really do that anymore. Not that I don't think she could, but that's just not the music she's doing. That being said, because she has that hip hop ability, she kind of like gives you like really conversational lyrics or, uh, singing style at times Mm -hmm. and it just comes across as very um authentic so i think you know song to song nothing feels compromised nothing feels like i made this with a-list producers like max martin even though she did make it with those people like it just it all feels and sounds like lizzo music still and I, i think that's obviously easier said than done where there's been countless pop stars that maybe aren't actually that artistic and kind of get lost when they work with all these other people. Right. We don't have to go into name names, but like Lizzo clearly has a real identity. And I find that really uh, just really commendable that she was able to live up to this pressure and all this, all these things going on, you know? So I just really hats off to her for that. Um, Honestly, I, I, I I was really impressed with um, the, the confidence and obviously she's a very confident artist, right? That's her thing. And she's, like I said, I, I, I just give her so much credit for the ability to make, I think, really uplifting music for so many people. Like She's obviously a clear role model and has accrued a legion of fans for all kinds of reasons, right? But to have the confidence to do Breakup Twice, which lyrically yeah. obviously can appeal to a lot of people, but to have the confidence to so openly interpolate Lauren Hill, Hill. doo yeah. boy, you know you better watch out. 
It's like, oh yeah. my god! Like I heard it right away. I was like, oh no, she's doing it. Yeah. Oh fuck, she did it. I was like, that, <laughs> that, that that was really good. Like that 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 was a really really I think tasteful and effective use of a sample. I completely agree, uh, and I think "Break Up Twice" is one of the highlights of this whole album for me. And, you know, speaking to your point about how she's so authentic that like even songs that if anyone else was doing them come across as like corny special right before it should be a song that you just listen to. And you're like, man, this is lame as hell. Like, what are you talking about? But <laughs> yeah. you hear, you hear Lizzo sing it and you're like, man, yeah, you know what? I am special. Like there's, everybody's got something special about him. She just has this like aura about her and this, her personality is just so, it just really shines through in these songs. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, I really liked, um, I love you, bitch, too. <laughs> I, I just found that to be, like, a really, like, fun song. And it has, like, that, like, w- disco light feel to it. Yes. And that's kind of what I think really, like, shown through is you have a song like Break Up Twice, which is obviously uh, you're biting Lauren Hill there, but it's a little bit more, like, toned down um naked is more of like a ballad you know and more like sensual sexual but like she from song to song she makes these tone changes work and everything feels uh so sticky and so well produced and so in line with her vision that you really just like buy into these changes and and even when you do go from a higher tone to a lower slower tone it doesn't really take you out of the album, which I was really impressed by. Mm-hmm. Um, if anything, I think the only moment that really took me out of the album was the last track, Coldplay, when it just has Chris Martin singing right at the beginning. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> like, I, I thought, uh, yeah, I was like, I don't know if this totally works. <laughs> but other than that, I think those first 11 tracks are just really, really great. Um, what other songs stood out to you? You know, I think in the hands of another artist, hearing a song titled Everybody's Gay would be like, hmm, are you mm-hmm. trying to... Uh, queer bait to your fans there and just kind of ride that. However, you listen to the song and it's like, you know, honestly, no. That's just kind of a really like honest, uplifting, inclusive song. It's yeah. softer than some of the other more dancey, disco-y, up-tempo bangers to that point, but it still feels real to Lizzo. And I think she's probably entitled to making a song like that because you know, she has a huge queer fan base. Exactly. Songs like Boys are staples of drag brunches and things like that. So, uh, you know, I there was a lot of room for a song like that to not be as effective as it ended up being. Totally. I, I, I had the same exact thought that it's like, you know, this this one could have fallen flat, but she just has that, so much buy-in from that community and has been such an ally to that community that at this point, I think she's given a little more lead leeway. Yeah, I mean... I really think like even songs that like you may not find yourself coming back to a lot, like birthday girl, it's probably not a song I'm going to find myself coming back to a lot, but that chorus, it's like, it's so fun. You know, you're just like, Oh yeah, this is great. Like upbeat, uplifting. You just got to love Lizzo's like aura, you know, like she just really makes things Mm. fun. It feels like a lot of time. So I really just enjoy her. One last note, too. You'll notice that the lead single we thought for this album, Rumors, featuring Cardi B, is not on this track list. Lizzo mm-hmm. said that basically the sentiment of those lyrics just didn't really fit the vibe for the rest of the album. So she left it off. And I was like, you know what? 
takes a lot of courage again to leave an A-list feature off your album, in this case, Cardi B. But um, honestly, yeah, it seems like it worked out. You know, this is a really short and sweet album that gives you so much to revisit. And yeah, uh, surely will uh, have many hits spawn from it. And, you know, Lizzo leading the the dancey, continuing this like dancey summer that Drake started and Beyonce will continue. So here we go. Absolutely. Um, Lizzo, she's a queen. We're putting out our Nostalgia Best of 22, uh, 2022 playlist, so fall down Spotify. But we're going to end music there for today and move into the TV realm, where Nathan Fielder, star and creator and brilliant mind behind Nathan for You, the Comedy Central hit that uh, I think still is <laughs> very well beloved to this day, dropped his new show, The Rehearsal, on HBO. And this is going to be a six-episode season. And basically, the premise of this show, kind of in line with Nathan for you, is uh, people have a hard time sometimes speaking uh, or addressing hard truths in their lives with people around them. And so he helps them rehearse their behaviors and and rehearse the way that they want to go about having this difficult interaction by creating these insanely elaborate replicas um so that when this person finally has the interaction they know exactly what they want to say and how they want it to go and what they what they want to get out of it it's really uh (laughs) it's a really impressive show um just because like it is so out there how like the lengths that they went to do some of these things so this the first episode dropped um it's obviously it's nathan uh fielder and he goes up to this person who replied to a craigslist ad saying do you have a hard truth that you're having a hard time like telling someone you care about first of all the fact that they just put it on craigslist is like hilarious to me and ridiculous that they're just going off that but he's in brooklyn um this guy's this guy named core wants to tell some of his uh trivia mates he's part of a bar trivia team that he's very invested in that he didn't actually get a master's degree he only got a bachelor's degree and he just never told them because he felt embarrassed or awkward or whatever the sentiment is i'm not going to spoil the whole thing but nathan goes to the extent of creating an exact replica exact replica of the bar that they're going to be having this interaction that they play trivia in. He gets a uh, actor to meet up with this person that he's going to, that core wants to talk to um, and to have this lengthy interview with her in order to like learn her uh, personality and her, the way she talks and the way she might respond to things. And then probably the funniest part of the whole thing is uh, core is so invested into the trivia that Nathan finds a way to find all the answers to the trivia beforehand and work them into these random interactions he has with Core. Oh man, this is the by far the funniest moment of the whole episode where he's walking around with Core and like, you know, every once in a while uh, they go up to like a lock and he's like, oh, if you ever need to unlock this lock, it's 1789, like when the French Revolution started and like just drops little like clues like that for what the answers are going to be. But they walk by this police officer who has this area roped off and the police officer goes, yeah, it's a, it's a standoff 
uh, it's a hostage situation. A whole family is in there. Uh, four people being held at gunpoint. It stays like this where I curse the Chinese for creating gunpowder. And like, <laughs> just like the interact. I mean, me saying it does not do it justice, but just the interaction, the way that they respond to it, such an outlandish thing to say. But uh, it's it's so funny. And, you know, I think the really brilliant part about Nate, uh, Nathan for you and, and what kind of comes across in the rehearsal is... Uh, Nathan Fielder is a very awkward and anxious, nervous person, and he kind of plays this character and toes this line in his show uh, in such a way that not only does it create these really funny moments, but it actually also creates these really heartfelt moments and like introspective and reflective moments. So you're not just like getting this funny show. I think is it probably raises a lot of questions for people that are watching the show about their their own selves and what it means to like be in these relationships and like what is actually trying to be achieved by the show so uh nathan for you nathan fielder just in general i think he's a comedic genius and uh the rehearsal i, I can't recommend it enough um probably my favorite thing i watched this week and we're going to be talking about uh what we do in the shadows in just a second so uh high praise for the show please check it out uh dave you didn't get a chance to see it do you plan on catching up people seem to like it and i've enjoy what i saw of nathan for you when i've seen bits and pieces online so yeah it feels like uh it's gotta get on the train yeah i think i think you do um so check that out on hbo but let's switch gears to fx or fx on hulu depending on how you watch it what we do in the shadows is back for season four our, by far i think our favorite comedy like pure comedy on tv would you say dave absolutely it's just minute to minute the funniest thing i watch and fx clearly knows this as well because this show was renewed not just for season five but also for season six so we'll be with our favorite vampires for at least two more years after the season that just began uh excellent news and season three ended in such a way where i thought there was gonna be some real shakeups to the structure of season four um nadia goes to um london to be part of the vampire council hmm. um Matt, uh, laszlo is staying behind with uh colin robinson baby colin robinson hmm. guillermo is sent abroad with nadia and uh i'm forgetting the last one's name I'm with sorry. Our, no with um nando so he was uh, uh, he was supposed to go with with Nandor, but Nandor right. throws him in a box to go yes. watch Nadia. But I don't think he, Nadia ever lets him out of the box <laughs> right. or something like that. I don't know. Basically, there's a year we skip forward a year, and everyone comes back to Staten Island mm-hmm. after being abroad. And it's actually kind of a way to have these characters making experience, have experiences and, and changes in their lives, but then bring the show back to what's familiar. And yeah. throw those characters with these changes into what we already know. Uh, d- did you see that coming, or did you think they were going to kind of lean into like the the different ways each character went at the end of season three? No, I definitely didn't see it coming off the season three finale. But I suppose it does make sense that these people, these characters, are just better when they're all together. And it's a vibe show. It's a hangout show. Mm-hmm. And it's better to hang out with everyone together for the most yeah, part. So totally. I get that. I get it, and I'm happy, happy with it. And there's already enough switch up. Con Robinson has been completely changed, <laughs> and who knows how long we'll be with baby. Well, now he's really like boy, Colin Robinson, adolescent <laughs> Colin. We don't really know, 
how long we'll be with him, but in this form, but that 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 in and of itself is is a energy shift as well, and also makes for great humor as you expect from this creative team where Laszlo is effectively treating him like a dog. <laughs> <laughs> the way he eats and the way that Guillermo responds to watching him eat is like just absolutely hilarious and uh, i think it's the second episode maybe it's the first episode but um yeah i think these first two episodes that dropped are just the the show it hasn't missed a beat it's still humming on all cylinders um i i think i preferred the second episode more to the to the first episode i loved the the nandor finding his wife and he's got the genie and you know go go get the gold coin they all start catching on to what the gold coin means i just thought that all that stuff is so funny uh man um but yeah the, so the first episode kind of like a getting reacquainted setting the characters up for these different paths that they're on and the second one um uh, like a hyper hypersexual episode you know nandor with all these different partners you have guillermo with the what's her name the floating woman Kristen shawl um guide her character yeah the guide um, <laughs> her slutty face yeah oh my god that all that stuff all like the her face and all the old-timey like drawings yeah. of women just be in ridiculous sexual situations was so funny oh man um yeah what, what did you like about these first two episodes what moments stood out I really enjoyed like kind of revolving bit that was the house has just been falling apart. Let last <laughs> just let the thing complete, completely go. And yeah. like, we just have these repeated bits of people falling through the floor into the sewage that is like underneath the basement. <laughs> I just continue to laugh at that. <laughs> that one moment, I, I think maybe the second time it happens when Nandor falls in, he's like, I smell a gas leak. And then immediately he's like, pass me a candle so I could find my way out. Yeah. <laughs> I know. So good. Uh man yeah i, I, I also really enjoyed the uh bit where we realized that the the backup at the suez canal was due to yeah. nandor <laughs> killing everyone aboard the ship that's yeah clausing, that was really great clog. i also loved how naja just is like obsessed with opening a vampire um nightclub and like yes. the, the council Shout was out like, blade every new person wants to do this it doesn't work <laughs> we're not gonna do it and then she's like fine i'm leaving and she goes back to Staten island to do this exact thing just really really funny i, I just thought that was great yeah and shout out blade timely too you know so uh totally. i wonder if we'll get a um i wonder if we'll get a uh mahershala like appearance in one of these in the background or something mm, maybe season great. six five, season six or five or six we might see him i mean if i remember right that one cameo of filled episode and season one i think the council you had a wesley snipes cameo yeah right so yep they've already done it in a certain sense yeah, um, and you got the taika marvel connection there so right of course uh yeah you know i think um there's there's only so much to say about the show because it just it knows exactly what it is and is able to s- tweak what it's doing again as we said with the, with what happened with colin but it's just really funny almost constantly and it's just a great great hang and i think stephanie robinson who's a co-showrunner of the show honestly deserves credit as one of like the greatest people working in tv these days between her contributions to this show and of course as one of the chief writers of atlanta um i also noticed in the credits that i i think it was episode two i didn't know if it was, if it was both but io adibri or Idabiri, who we just saw on fx starring in the bear was actually a consulting producer on mm. at least one of these episodes so it's a lot of talent uh you know involved here as well as we know um, and season three was just nominated for best comedy series at the Emmys, which we love to see. There's that recognition of a show that's not by any means a ratings hit, but 
everyone who does give it a chance seems to disagree that it's just really effing funny. Yeah. Uh, I I don't know if there's even that much more to say because it, the show is just humming on all cylinders, hasn't missed a step. And if you love this show, you just know that you have to watch this week to week. Um, and if you if you know people that aren't watching it, tell them about it because this is a show yeah. that, that deserves to get more recognition than it does for sure. Um, why don't we move forward though from what we do in the shadows onto Miss Marvel? Talking about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the Marvel TV universe just keeps humming, dog. And uh, Miss Marvel wrapped up its first season. Um, Kamala is now officially Miss Marvel. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot I really liked about this season. I think what the times I really liked the show were when it was exploring the culture of this character, not only in the United States and what it meant to be a person in Jersey city, but also a person who is of it's Pakistani. Pakistani. Yeah. I wanted to make sure I got that right. Pakistani uh, descent. Um, And I think the times when I didn't enjoy the show as with most Marvel shows is when it kind of devolves into the Marvel CGI fest. But also I think when it, I think when the show makes some leaps in terms of plot development, that just felt like a yada, 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 um, hmm. you know, a, a critique I really agreed with that I hadn't fully formed, but Ellen Seppenwall, I think said so, so well on Twitter was the whole like in the fourth and fifth episodes when she she goes to Pakistan and has this flashback to yes, her partition. family that that could have been its whole own season you know and and I feel like that would have yeah. been such a rich thing to explore but for whatever they're trying to accomplish to get her ready to be in the Marvels they yada 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 this stuff a little bit Correct. and it feels just like such a missed opportunity and it's something that it was just so rushed in some ways. So I, uh, I I think there were some things to like and some things not to like, but what was your takeaway from the season? Yeah, I think that's right. I think the strengths of the show are clearly the cultural material. I think everything with the partition of India mm-hmm. was done very well. I think even the portrayal of Islam and yeah, both the bad things that accompany that in terms of gender roles, but also mm-hmm. the, um, bad things that other people put on in terms of like the strict surveillance by law enforcement of these people um i I like seeing that there but there's just not enough time for this series to be the miss marvel origin story and also the kamala khan backstory which are kind of two separate things and i enjoyed that it was largely small stakes at the end of the day we and end the season back in Jersey city where we began the villains, you know, I think are, are kind of weak and oh yeah, it, it's a bit, a bit unclear, like this red daggers and clandestine stuff. Like it's just not, not that cool. And I think just, just being in being with the partition timeline itself is a lot more interesting than like what the clandestines happen to be up to and influencing in the time. It's just like, I'm not really interested in that. But like just like the character moments, I think like Kamala's whole family, even if we're with them only in fits and starts, everything feels really uh, lived in and it feels like a loving, real family, you know, and her friends 
again, they're only in it in little bits, but like they feel like real people. But you know, I think the the stuff with the stuff with her powers, you know, I think you really you barely get to see her be Miss Marvel until the end there, which makes sense for an origin show. But like they had to change some of the Miss Marvel powers from the comics and I think it's all right, you know, but like at the end of the day, I also didn't really care about this conflict with damage control. You know, it's like that they're not, they're not really antagonists and the show also isn't really equipped to like treat that kind of situation in terms of like police overstepping their bounds and potentially harming civilians. Like the show isn't equipped to actually tackle that in a thoughtful way either. So it's just kind of a big half-baked thing you know it's not that cool now the the scheme with with kamala and all her friends to to thwart uh damage control in the school there that was fun you know that was nice and you get you get the reminder of those like in frame animations illustrations on the chalkboard the way we saw them in the premiere episode i would have liked that kind of visual flair to have been in episodes two through five as well uh it wasn't really the case but uh yeah i think it's um you know, it's it's a bit up and down, but also to me, kind of easily the third best MCU Marvel show, which makes it the best Marvel show in a year's time. It's been that long since Loki came out, funny enough, you know, it's so much Marvel, you know, and I think I think Miss Marvel, even though it's far from perfect, it to me, I think is it's the third best series. Yeah, I, I think it's probably third for me as well. Um, you know, I I. I hesitate to say this just because there's so much drama and uh, potential abuse going on in, in this realm, but this, I th- just thought the CGI at times just was not great. Um, now, obviously, if you're tuned into any of the like comings and goings of the Marvel world, there's been some talk recently about the pressure that the CGI teams are put under by Marvel Studios and um, the lack of like real support and these like unreal unrealistic deadlines and stress that people are put under. So I I, I don't really want to use that as a real critique because it sounds like there might be some issues at play beyond. Uh, yeah. It's a systemic beyond problem, not yes. really to blame the show for per se. Yeah, but um, I definitely like when you finally see Kamala be Miss Marvel at the end. Like I just thought her like body looked like a little strange at points, and that was a little like whatever um i also felt like the show and maybe they're setting this up for more in coming seasons but made a real misstep by making uh alicia rayner the main dodc agent and not uh yeah Yeah. i mean not only do you have an iranian american actor who i Mm -hmm. mean obviously we're talking about a pakistani family but like pakistan iran border i think there's a lot of something to explore there uh but stewie's just so much more engaging i, I called him stewie <laughs> uh, <laughs> his name is Pete cleary on the show um, right who we yeah. met in spider-man of course yeah and he's just so much more engaging on screen than alicia rayner who had a very thankless part if we're being honest um yep. you know it, i really enjoyed i think probably one of the like breakthrough actresses in this for me outside of obviously um Iman Vellani who's plays Kamala is Yasmin Fletcher um who plays Nakia the her yeah. friend who runs for mosque board I felt like every time she was on screen I just found her to be a actress I was really tuned into and watching and she felt very convincing you know it 
her her storyline in relation to Kamala falls into the the YA realm where it's like you didn't tell me about this thing and now I'm mad at you and you know that's what friendships <laughs> are but like I, I still felt like it was like fairly convincing I thought she like acted well with what she had to work with what did you think of um the villain what was what was her name um yeah uh, so it was technically her aunt right? yeah that's right the, one of the clandestines yeah was kind of moving uh, through time and get that whole reveal with how uh uh kamala's grandmother survived the partition and got out basically got out on the train um mm-hmm. and we're, we're that, that antagonist kind of like boils up I thought she fizzled out in a pretty dull way. Agree. And they, they basically just kind of dropped out. Like, okay, we have to leave Karachi. We have to get back to Jersey City to end the season. Mm-hmm. And that, like you said, that balance up on wall point about how this show needed to be two seasons to be at yeah, maximum effectiveness is kind of obvious. But like, that's not what this show is here for. It's not here for maximum storytelling. It's here to be a prequel to the Marvels, Captain Marvel mm-hmm. 2, and you get the stinger scene where you see Carol Danvers, you see Brie Larson there. It's like, that's why this show exists. And that's not as fulfilling as what just normal storytelling would be. But that's kind of the constraints that the Marvel Cinematic Universe is putting on its themselves. TV storytelling right now. Yeah uh really just like uh a misstep and you know there, there's been a lot of critique about marvel in general and you know what, what what direction is phase four going i'm sure we'll get a little bit more of an idea when comic-con uh happens i think it's coming up this weekend right this weekend um, yeah San Diego so we'll be talking about that next week but i think this is one of those times when it feels like whatever they're trying to achieve with the marvels maybe is actually like getting in the way of them exploring some like interesting stories and almost like maybe not knowing what they have with things i know i i have heard that viewership was was lower for this series i i you know there's a lot of theories as to why some may nefarious and, and potentially racist and it, some are just like well it's a newer character in the comic right. books and there's just less you know response to the character it also started off head to head on disney plus with obi-wan which yeah, was not a not a fair fight for sure not a fair fight so uh you know there I, I don't know what that necessarily says about the show or about the character it'll be interesting to see how right. marvel takes it but I, I really just hope that it doesn't uh, stop them from pursuing these sorts of stories and exploring these sorts of cultural stories because as we talked about uh, with almost every single Marvel show they've done or even a lot of recent movies they're at their best when they get weird or they go in a direction that they've never gone in before and they really allow creators from these spheres to explore those things if they start kind of going back to just like this very bland kind of thing that I think that's where this like fourth phase could really start to get in some real trouble so yeah and i think just in general like the viewership of miss marvel which is impossible to discern a true reason for obviously it's many reasons but like you know you have to imagine that this marvel fatigue uh feeling for viewers 
it's bearing out in a certain sense where I feel like the response of Thor Love and Thunder was a lot harsher than it would have been if we hadn't been watching tons of Marvel stuff for the last years. We're coming off 2021 where there were four MCU movies and four MCU shows. And by the time 2022 is done, we'll have seen another four MCU movies and four MCU shows. It's just a lot, especially because these shows are long. Mm-hmm. six hours they're not two hour movies you know so uh, i think unintended consequences in terms of how people may have treated thor we're yeah. starting to see that so obviously we're curious to see how she hulk goes come august and we know black panther 2 is on the way in the fall so more to come but uh you know i think miss marvel in a sense was a bit of a unfortunate casualty in everything that's been going on because like i said i think it's the third best series it's clearly better than Hawkeye to me, clearly better than Moon Knight to me, and Falcon and the Winter Soldier as well. So I, I think um, at the very least, it's effective in the sense that they nailed the casting of Kamala Khan, of Am- Aman Vellani. Yes. is really great, really a revelation. So hopefully she carries the Marvels as well, because Captain Marvel 1 was a bit of a mixed bag as well. So <laughs> well, we'll find out next year. Are you just itching to get back with Carol Danvers, Steve? Can't say I am. You know, I actually <laughs> like Brie Larson, but I don't really like her as Captain Marvel, or at least, you know, she hasn't been put in the best position. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I'm not I'm super thrilled about it either, but we'll we'll be talking about it when we get to it. Drop us your thoughts on this first season of Miss Marvel. But now we're gonna turn it over to Dave to wrap us up today to talk about The Deer King, a movie he saw this week, right? Yeah, so I saw The Deer King. Uh, in theaters last week it was a limited release in the u.s from g kids anime film that had come out uh earlier in the year in japan came out even february in japan and then has sprinkled out throughout the world since then and got a like i said a small release in the u.s and this is a uh anime film based on a book series directorial debut from masashi ando who is well-known as the animation director for anime classics such as Spirited Away and Your Name. But this is actually his director debut, and many other people on the creative team for The Deer King are also Studio Ghibli veterans. So a bit of pedigree coming into this movie, and I had had it on the radar for some time, been waiting for it to finally get a release date. And I think if you see the images or you see the trailer, there will be a bit of familiarity to it, which makes sense for people coming from the Studio Ghibli world. The animation style is quite familiar. And if you watch the movie uh, thematically, plot-wise, there is also a bit in, uh, in common with such Ghibli classics as Princess Mononoke. Now, that is both a good thing and a bad thing, because I think where the Deer King falters a bit, it's because it feels a bit derivative of something that came before that is inherently greater than it. In this case, Princess Mononoke, which is obviously one of the greatest anime films of all time. People know this by now. So, you know, I think uh, I enjoyed the film, even though like you can clearly see that it's like, it's a bit uneven because it has so many like intriguing parts to it. I mentioned the animation just engaging and makes you feel familiar with the Ghibli classics, but like you're just immediately thrown into this rich world with like heavy lore and apart from some expository dialogue you're just kind of thrown into it and you just kind of have to pick it up as you go and that's all really i think really compelling and you know in this case we're 
in this war, this you know this faraway kingdom and next thing you know we're we're, we're picking up on the these these this political uh undercurrent you know like these two kingdoms aquafa and zoles all kind of governs over this other kingdom aquafa and then we learn that there's this um mysterious disease called the mitsuul and that disease seems to only affect the people of zol the um the uh the conquerors and those people think it's like the curse the curse that the aqua people have put on them so there's all this there's kind of um political undertones going on here and we get introduced to this doctor character who is kind of like the the champion of science but he has to fight back against this like spiritual belief going on in 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 the in the capital and that's all like really i think really compelling because again you're just kind of thrown into this world that clearly has like rich lore and uh like history like it just feels like you're in a real place and you know i think where the movie falters is because our, our lead protagonist uh van uh he mysteriously doesn't get sick he seems to he gets powers when he gets the disease and the doctor is like huh we're going to use him to make a vaccine that's literally what his job and like he's like you know revolutionary because he wants to try and actually make this vaccine like he's kind of figures it out over time that they should use this guy's blood to make antibodies and it's like it's like there's actually like a really like unintentionally uh prescient like scientific like storyline going on in the deer king (laughs) (laughs) however i think where the movie falters a bit is we start to get into this more um uh, the conflict of the movie i think like it just gets a bit a bit muddled and like it starts to get very derivative in terms of its mysticism and like treatment of nature and like he just really starts to give you mononoke vibes like the guy with the, in both movies they ride on deer you know um in both <laughs> movies like they have like very similar powers like there's just some obvious parallels going on and they also of course have the same animation style so and yeah you know i think for the deer king too like it's a bit of an underwhelming uh, ending. You know, the movie kind of ends in a flat way, but there were so many appealing parts to it that I feel like like the, the bones of something really cool in the anime world were here. And it doesn't quite come together, but I think, you know, if you're an anime fan, there's certainly things to like about this. And even just like seeing something that's, ah, this is a derivative work of Princess Mononoke. Still kind of enjoyable at times, you know? It's not all bad, mm-hmm. so... You know, I think if, if if you're into anime, it's definitely worth a worth a watch. But definitely, uh, fell a bit short of what I was hoping for because I feel like the um, the marketing made it really seem like like had potential to like stand out as like a great, you know, really awesome. It's not quite that, but there's still things to like about it. Well, we we appreciate you uh, getting into to see this movie, even though it was such a limited release. I'm not going to ask you how you got into this, Dave. I, I don't want to expose you too much. AMC I, theaters. But you, you do what you have to do for the content. We appreciate that. And speaking of content, what content are we going to be talking about next week? Sheesh. There's a lot of good stuff coming next Sheesh. week. Jordan Peele's third film. Nope. Yeah. Coming out. Very yeah. exciting. Also, the, the most expensive Netflix film to date, The Gray Man, Ryan Gosling, Chris Evans, Russo Brothers' first movie since Endgame is out on Netflix. Music-wise, we have Jack White and Rico Nasty and the delayed Joey Badass album. And then San Diego Comic-Con's happening, so there might be some important news coming out as well. 
We'll be talking about it all. Hit that subscribe on youtube.com slash nostalgiapod. Go to our Twitter at nostalgiapod and follow our link tree to follow us on any podcasting platform that you prefer. And give us a five-star rating on any of those platforms, especially Spotify. We'll catch you next week. Hey.